1: I think that in the other sort of parts of the culture writing space, so music, even film, theater, have been a lot more open to new voices, younger voices, voices of color, than even the art world is today, still right now. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, curator and art writer Antoine Sargent talks about his career and about the late, great Virgil Abloh. What he had to do is redesign the world to meet him where he was at.
0: In recent years, there's been an explosion of interest in art made by Black Americans. At or very near the center of this explosion is Antoine Sargent. He's a writer, an editor, and a curator. He has written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and Art in America, and his books include The New Black Vanguard, Photography Between Art and Fashion. One of his recent projects is a show featuring the work of the fashion designer Virgil Abloh at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. He's here to talk about that, about contemporary Black photography and art, and about his career as a writer and curator. Antoine Sargent, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Hey, Debbie, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Antoine, I read that you don't really believe in seasonal style, but you do have one sartorial rule. Give a look and always wear a matching hat. So I want to talk about your hats. When did you first start wearing them?
1: I started first wearing hats maybe five or six years ago. I started with this wide-brim hat, wool hat, black hat, from a brand called Westerlin. Then I got a white one from Westerlin, and then I stopped making them. And so I had to sort of figure out something else. And there's a designer, hat designer, who lives in New York, but is from Chicago like I am, named Rodney Patterson, runs a brand called Essential, and he's been making my hats for the last several years. I wear a style that he makes called the Russian cuff hat. It's made actually from this sort of Japanese paper, and so it's actually a paper hat, and so if it rains or whatever, or sweat or whatever, so I I get them sort of remade, every now and again, and I sort of mostly wear one that's um, off-white. You know, I slowly started to shape whole entire sort of outfits and my aesthetic around this hat. And so I wear a lot of browns and (laughs) things that can sort of match the hat. And because it's basically white, it sort of can go, it's versatile, goes with anything. But yeah, I I love this hat and I wear it all the time.
0: (laughs) You mentioned that it's primarily an off-white hat. Um, Is that uh, a a nod to Virgil?
1: (laughs) I I thought I would use, instead of saying tan or beige, I thought I would use off-white just because of the current show um, with Virgil. Yeah, that was intentional. (laughs) Yeah,
0: good. Actually, I was hoping so. And we'll talk a lot more about the show with Virgil in a little bit. Um, You grew up in Cabrini Green Homes in Chicago, and I understand your mom sent you to a Catholic school and managed while working at a Walgreens Mm -hmm. to what you've referred to as subsidize your youthful ambitions. And, And I was wondering if you could tell us more about your mom and her influence on you. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, my mother is like so influential in so many different ways. We went to pretty great schools and it was just, you know, at the time, you know, being a kid, you don't really sort of think about the sort of sacrifice one has to make. For that to happen. And so, you know, we went to Catholic schools, you know, most of our lives. I've, I mean, went to Georgetown. So I even completed the circle um, at a Catholic school. But it was definitely, um, I think, didn't realize then, but now that, you know, so many sacrifices that particularly my mother made um, to make sure that, you know, we went to really great schools, got really great educations, but also did the things we wanted to do. And so, like, I somehow became fascinated with German, and in high school was like, I want to go to Germany to, you know, there was a exchange program, and she figured it out, you know, like, and and, you know, again, when you're a kid, you're sort of in your own little bubble, and you don't really sort of know um, the sacrifices, you know, your parents make, right? And so, and now, and you know, reflecting on that, I'm like, wow, that was a totally unusual (laughs) opportunity. Largely because my mother, you know, made the sacrifices on her, you know, salary. I mean, she has moved up, you know, over the years at Walgreens. But the only job my mother's ever had, you know, um, was at Walgreens. You know, everything from when she was sixteen, being a cashier, rising up to management. You know, and so it's it's just sort of an extraordinary thing to sort of think about in relationship to the work that I did do, but also the way that it shaped my life.
0: I understand that by the time you were 15 years old, you discovered ID Magazine and would take a 45-minute bus trip each way every month to get to the one bookstore that sold it. And if it wasn't there, you'd go back the next week to see if it it had arrived. You said that you didn't know there were people making the kinds of images you saw at that time in the magazine. What, what kind of images intrigued you the most?
1: I was sort of just like, I mean, ID was like such a Bible for me. I like I would go get the magazine, take all the pages out, put them up on my walls, you know, like and my whole like bedroom was covered in these images from from ID. And I I, I think more so than just the type of images it was really about sort of like the type of people. I just was like, wow, like, who are these people? You know, and, I would, and, and more so the point of who are these people was like these are my people, you know, like, I don't know where or how, but I know that these, these are my people. And I just love the way that folks style themselves. I love reading the interviews and just sort of having, cause like, you know, at that time, ID was like super young people. Right. So like in 15, these folks were maybe five, six, seven years older than me. And so the power, I think of, of that magazine really sort of wanted me to sort of be a writer and sort of be someone in the culture, because you have like artists, you had musicians, you had, you know, all of these different, you know, sort of folks who were young and had something to say and, and, you know, I just considered myself one of them. And, and yeah, looking at those ID magazines, it so ordered a lot of my decisions in life, I must say.
0: <laughs> What's really remarkable to see is when good parenting meets extreme creativity.
1: Yeah, there was never any, which I really sort of love in what my mother did. I don't remember ever being told, you got to do this or you got to do that. We were very sort of supervised, but also very independent in that sort of supervision. So there was like broad parameters. There was never a curfew, but you also probably knew if you had school the next day that you weren't going to be out to, you know what I mean? Like, so it was sort of a, it was a really sort of a trusting sort of relationship. Um, I I remember like, I, (laughs) I remember, I remember I went in the sixth grade, I went to, we had moved away from sort of a downtown neighborhood, the Cabrini sort of old town neighborhood. And the school th- that I was going to, which was St. Joseph's, which was a private Catholic school that was two blocks away from the building I was born in, essentially, was just like so far from the new neighborhood, right? It was like 45 minutes each way. And my mom was like, the public school is fine in this neighborhood. You're going to go to the public school. And so we went to a public school and then like, you know, like my Catholic school was so strict that, like, you couldn't sneeze. You know, <laughs> it was like, it was a real sort of strict. <laughs> so, and so you go to this public and I'm like, I had so much freedom, so much freedom in the sense that, like, if you didn't do your work, there was no, like, like I'm not gonna, I don't wanna do science, right? Because I didn't like the teacher. I was a pretty, I had a great sort of academic sort of background in that regard. Like, I was a straight A student basically my old life. And I got a D in science because I didn't like the teacher and I refused to do the work. And I remember, this was in the sixth grade, and I remember, like, my mother was just like, okay, great, so you will not be leaving this house until the next report card. And the report cards were, like, 12 weeks, inter- you know, this is not, like, weeks away. And so she was, like, sort of tough in those ways, where it was, like, if you did sort of do something that was sort of beneath what you were capable of, you were definitely disciplined You know how, like, you can sort of sometimes push parents to, like, do... There was none of that in my household. It was like, (laughs) this is a decision. This is what you're going to do. You will not be leaving the house, you know? And for 12 weeks, I did... I went to school, came home, went to school, came home. And I have learned that lesson well into adulthood.
0: (laughs) How how did you do on your next report card in science? Trade
1: A, Sterling. He's the best student ever. (laughs) You know, it was, like, really, like...
0: (laughs) You know, it's so interesting um, what people do or how people respond with teachers that they don't like. My nephew is 14 and has been tortured over this last year in ninth grade, hating his math teacher and was really happy to be able to call her Karen because <laughs> she she felt she was a Karen and that's her name. And the more he hated her the more he disengaged from the class and i'm like no 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 you you can't do this this right. is this is bad for you you have to win her over you have to figure out a way so that she doesn't punish you for not liking her. Right. And and it was a really challenging year. I can't begin to tell you how happy I am that this the school year is now over for him and he's going into 10th grade with a different teacher. But it's so amazing. It's that like cut off to your nose to spite your face when it's only in the grand scheme of things going to hurt you. Exactly. And you have to so learn we, how to deal with
1: people, right? You have yeah, to learn how to yeah. deal with people you don't like. You have to sort of... And I think that was probably my mother's sort of point was like... Um, Just because like someone, it cannot throw you off your game, you know, like you have to sort of figure a way, figure out a way around it.
0: Yeah. You were involved in the slam poetry scene. You were writing. You were also simultaneously interning for judges, doing Mm -hmm. mock trials and working for organizations in the community. All at that point with a focus on becoming a lawyer. Yeah. What motivated you, given all of your artistic interests, given all of your interests in fashion and style, as well as sports, what motivated you to become, to want to become a lawyer? I think it was just like,
1: you saw people who like did traditional jobs. You know, I didn't know any artists, right? Although I had, would hang out at um, New York Institute of Chicago. MCA Chicago is a good seven blocks from my childhood where I grew up. You know, like, I went to those places all the time and, you know, and obviously had extraordinary creative friends and, like, but I just didn't know, like any of that was possible for me, you know, coming from a family that, like, that you didn't have that representation in my family, you know? Like, my brother was the first person to go to college. I was the second person to go to college. You know, like, that was, and that was within a few years of each other, right? And had I known, though, that, like, there was a pathway, say, in the arts or literature or whatever, I don't know if I would have gone to Georgetown. Because when I got there, the first two years were literally like, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. I cannot do this. You know, and um, actually flew home quite a lot because I was, in some ways, extraordinarily miserable. Um, the first two years, like I was like an out gay, black black kid, you know, like, and I had been out and gay forever, and then to go there, and then there's was like, everyone's in a closet. They dress really differently than I do. They, you know, it was like all of these things that I was just sort of like, wow, like, how did I end up here? And it was just mostly because like I had heard that the School of Foreign Service was the school to go if you wanted to go into politics or if you wanted to be a lawyer. And then I end up there and I'm like, oh, wait, I don't know if this fits my personality. Maybe I should have went to a liberal arts school. You know, like, like That was sort of the, the first two years. And then I sort of met a friend group um, that were at, some were at the school and some was at Howard University. And that is how I sort of navigated.
0: How did you get the internship with Hillary Clinton?
1: I just literally applied online. Usually those internships are highly like, you know, it's like you got to know somebody or whatever. I just, I saw the application open. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just apply and, you know, see. And, and yeah, and I got the internship and, uh, you know, it was just like, on the hill, and it's kind of funny because that was the moment I was like, mm, "I don't think I want to do this, you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not not because of anything that happened in the office or any you know anything like that. It was just sort of like, I don't think that politics or American politics in this way is for me." Thank you for, you know, that's what happens in internships. You sort of come to realizations. And so, um, but, you know, she, I, you know, there were several times that I met her. She, at the time, she was like really, I think there were four days a week, she was on the trail for Obama. But she was there sometimes. And, you know, the only thing I sort of really remember is that she would be there all day long. There was lots, and lots, of lots of like Constituent stuff we had to do for upstate New York farmers and like I mean there was just like a I mean it was just really sort of like uh, retail politics and I was like I don't want to be involved in this thank you for the experience you know
0: <laughs> after you graduated from Georgetown rather than go on to law school you decided to move to New York City and work for Teach for America teaching kindergarten. Mm -hmm. you were teaching kindergarten students how to read yes what made you decide to do that and what made you decide to choose kindergarten so
1: (laughs) sort of a funny story now that i look look back on it so all of the people that i know are moving to new york and so that's sort of how it started and then i had like well how am i going to pay to move to new york because it's not cheap and like It's not like, you know, there's some family wealth or, you know, anything like that. It was like, you figure it out, you know. And so I applied for two jobs. One was at Goldman Sachs and one was with Teach for America because those were the two things that my friends were also doing, right? Um, And so I thought Teach for America was like the better thing to do. It's like flipping a coin though, Antoine. Yeah, for sure. Heads
0: heads I go to Goldman Sachs and tails I go teach. The hours
1: (laughs) are better teaching than they were at Goldman Sachs. And, (laughs) um, And so I sort of agreed to do Teach for America, but I agreed and I said, I really want to teach history. I want to teach high school history because I can do that in my sleep. And they were like, "No, you need. You're needed in East New York, Brooklyn, and you're needed at this new school, and you're going to be a kindergarten teacher." And then I was like, "Well, kindergarten. Oh, they take like I remember kindergarten. You take naps half the day, then you go." <laughs> and so I was like, "Fine. Like this is cool. Like whatever. Like they'll nap. I'll like we'll do the ABC song. It'd be good. You know. Like that was sort of my impression, but." It, Education has changed a lot in, you know, in America. And in kindergarten, you're expect to read, you're expect to do basic math, you expect to, you know, be able to do all these things that you used to have to do in the second and, say, third grade, you know, or the first, second, you know, sort of grade. And so they were like, you're going to be the reading teacher. And I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to sort of figure it out. And the first year, I had a co-teacher who absolutely hated me, like, hated, like, everything about... Because, you know, like, it was... It was, what I didn't understand then was that it's an extraordinarily altruistic, but in the end, a really sort of insane proposition to send, I guess, highly educated, quote unquote, kids into our most struggling communities who have no education background, by the way. And then say that they're going to transform those communities, right? Like, that was the ethos, right, at the time. And here I come, had gone to Georgetown and, and you know, whatever, you know. And I'm paired with a teacher who had studied education, been teaching for 15 years, had won all these awards, and then suddenly I'm her equal, right?
0: Yeah, wow.
1: I mean, I knew nothing about education at that point. I just thought that, like, I wanted to, like... Figure out a way to give back because I had been given so much through the education system and given so many opportunities and not say that I did not sort of rise to the occasion because I did and I taught for four years and all of my kids came in, couldn't read and they sort of left, you know, well above grade um, like, really, like, reading at second and third grade levels. And it was such a, like, eye open, like, in every way possible, eye-opening experience for me in terms of just, like, it really firmed up, like, what I wanted to do. Because I was, like, teaching from 7 a... I was at a charter school from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then I would get off work. And then, like, I would have all this time, basically. And i a person with a lot of energy, have always been a person with a lot of energy, And I was like, okay, like, what, you know, what else? And then, like, I met my best friend and still to this day roommate, Jaja Faye, who was at the time at the Guggenheim as the digital person, like, basically bringing the Guggenheim into the 21st century. And she would just, like, make, she made me her plus one. And so every night I would, like, go to her to, like, all these, like, really great art parties and all this, because I was like, in Chicago, this is what I did, you know, like, this, I was hanging out with artists, and, you know, and so I just sort of start meeting artists, and she would take me around. And I'd meet, you know, Kendi Wiley and I'd meet Mickling Thomas and I'd meet Thelma Golden. And I just like meet all these people who I didn't actually could not place really. Cause I didn't, you know, I didn't know the New York art world. I just knew I was meeting these people. They were complimenting my outfits. I was having a great time with them. And then at some point someone's like, well, what do you do? You're always around. Like you're, you know, you come to all the, the things like what, like, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a teacher actually. And they were like, no, you're an artist, you're an artist. You know, I'm like, no, no, I'm really a teacher. I just dress insanely, you know, like, that's, you know. And so that question sort of inspired, I'm like, well, what can I do in this world, right? In this world that I clearly have a really great affection towards, I like the people, you know, I'm going to people's studios, doing studio visits, seemingly for no reason other than my own curiosity. I was like, is there a contribution I can make here? And at the time, I think it was like, This is 2011, 2012, the art world has changed dramatically in the years in between. And I mean dramatically since at the time there was maybe one or two black art shows every 12 to 16 months and then we would all have to sort of show up. And so I got to know everybody because there was only so many shows that happened. And there was a far, you know, fewer people interested, even in the black community, in black artists, right? Like, it was, like, a weird language. Like, what is art? Like, what do you do? You know, my, my mom, I remember being like, wait, what are you, like, what's going on? What are you writing about? Like, you know, like, didn't you want to be a lawyer? You know, like, those were the sort of the, <laughs> the questions. Um, and it was also, I think it was also at the beginning of sort of Instagram. And and that also was sort of interesting. So we would just, like, go around and I would see Jaja, like, taking photos of everything. I was like, well, I guess I'll take photos of it. You know, like, it was just sort of, like, that sort of how it, Started and then, teacher for America is a two year commitment. I had saved a lot in my name. I was like, okay, I'm gonna stop this because I have to wake up at five forty five in the morning every every day, get on the C train, go out to east New York. But then I'm partying until like two a.m. in the morning, and then and so I'm like, this maybe is not like I have a lot of energy. I don't know if I have this much energy, you know. And then I'm with literally four and five year olds for eight hours. I completed the program. It's sort of an odd thing to say. It's like, I think I grew up in that environment over those years. If you can convince a five-year-old to sort of do what you need them to do to meet their goals, then you can talk to anybody. You know, <laughs> you can talk <laughs> to yeah. anybody. I really, <laughs> really I'm like, true. you can literally speak to anybody. And, yeah. you know, at the time, it's like, you know, I'm a little, like, wiped, you know, and because charter schools also go... I think 11 months out of the year in New York. And you were also getting your master's degree. Exactly. And so I was getting a master's while I was doing, it was just, it, I mean, I can't even, I look back at 21, 22, I'm like, how did this, like how, <laughs> this was like when New York and New York clubs were still like a thing. And so I was like, you know, and then also in New York, like Tuesday nights were a big thing. And then it was Wednesday night. So it wasn't even like the weekend. Cause we going out on a weekend was like not cool. At, you know, then And so, like, he would just like be going out Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, and then I'm like, I have to get up at five. You know, it was like really. i even thinking about it now. I'm like, I don't know how I did that. But yeah, and so I, I decided to stop after my two years were up, save some money. And was like, well, I'm going to write because I had gotten some. The Huffington Post had given me a little a blog at that point, and at, in those days, it, those were the coolest things. The Huffington Post blog. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: You also had an internship at, or no, not an internship, a fellowship
1: at BuzzFeed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was writing for my Huffington Post blog, and then from that got a fellowship at BuzzFeed, and I did that for six months. Um, hated every single day of it. Like in a sense that like I was not a pop cult. like that sort of thing was just like not my thing. Well, they don't
0: cover art, right? You exactly. Covering they, didn't, what right, you right. Wanted they didn't cover to, yeah. any
1: of the any of my interests, which were, which were right. art and fashion, and they didn't cover, especially in those early days, right? It was like cat videos, and they were like, didn't they right. clicks, clicks, and, and all of that stuff? Yeah. And then like I was like making memes, and like, like a lot of people don't understand that like those early day like BuzzFeed like employees like. A lot of them have gone on to do extraordinary things, you know, who are extraordinarily talented people. But we were just, you know, we were like, if we wanted to put a, you know, a meme into an article, that didn't exist. So we were cutting the footage, making the meme, overlaying the text, and the, you know what I mean. Like we were really sort of, and that, you know, it's like tedious if you're doing that for forty things on a listicle or whatever. And so I was just like, this is not for me. And so I started freelancing on the side. And I would just started pitching things, pitch something to Vogue, and then pitch something to. Then there was an editor at the New Yorker who like read something that I did. I'm 23, by the way. You know, I like, know. this is like insane. <laughs> like, like 23 year old. Like, and then like like the New, I started writing for the New Yorker online, and like, and then my beat sort of in the art world was just like, since you know, uh, all the artists that I know and or mostly that I know and that I hang around with are black artists. I'm just gonna write about them. No one else is doing it, right? And so was just sort of and so just did that just religiously. And but I wasn't making enough money doing freelance. I mean, New Yorker online at the time paid like $325 you know, for an yeah. article. And then I was writing for Vice, and Vice paid me a little bit more money, but I had to produce so many stories, right? To sort of make it. And so I called my my principal and I said, hey. Here's an idea. if you give me back my salary <laughs> I'll teach all my classes, but I need to not do any of the other things right and i'll and he was was like absolutely, and so he gave me back my salary, my benefits, the whole sort of situation, and I taught just my classes, and so I had to be there like I think at like eight forty five to one forty five and so in that chunk, I did all my classes and then I could write and I can sort of do that and I did that for two years before I was like okay I think I'm ready to go out and you know do this meaning I had enough money to make rent you know like I, I, I figured out enough of a freelance sort of scenario where I could make rent I can eat and you know there was enough free dinners in the art world that you could you know <laughs> like, like that was sort of the way that like it was sort of happening and then people just sort of started to take notice. Like artists would be like, Antoine, come write about that. You know, it was like that sort of vibe. And then I, yeah. And then like the big sort of the thing that I remember to be like, oh, this, I could really do this was Mnuchin Gallery was doing Ed Clark uh, catalog. And he asked me, on really short notice, one summer, would I write the catalogue? And I was like, yeah, sure, you know, I've never written a book or anything like, you know, or a big essay like this. I'm, you know, just like, absolutely, you know. And then it was also challenging because, like, Ed Clark was an abstract artist and severely overlooked, but he had been in shows and stuff, but there was not a lot of, like, scholarship on him. There was no, like, research, essentially, right? And so a lot of it was, like, talking to his daughter, reading every possible thing that you could find, talking to artists who had, like, known him or collected the work, talking to his collector. Like, it was, like, this sort of truly, like, large, like, research project because I just didn't really know that much about his work. And that was sort of, like, the challenge. And I remember them being like, well, how much do you want to be paid for this? And I was just like how much do I want to eat? Like, what? Like, I, I'm usually paid nothing for anything, you know? And so I called some some friends and was like, well, what do you, like, when you do this for the gallery and whatever, and they're like, well, you know, somebody told me, like, Ed Clark's work, I forget the price, but it was hundreds of thousands of dollars at that point, you know? And I was like, well, if that's what's happening on one piece of art, then I can, you know, maybe use this to pay off my student loans. And so I looked at my balance. And I think at the time it was like 21,000 something, something like dollars. And I asked him for, I think, 22K or something, like right above that number. And they gave it to me and I just took the money and I paid off my student loans. And that that was the only sort of debt I had had. And I was like, well, now that I don't have any debt, I can do whatever I want, you know. And so... I just like kept writing and, and freelancing, but it was it was a lot of like fun though. You know, I was learning something every single day. I was getting to spend time with the most interesting people I had ever met, thinking about questions of identity and race and representation and materiality, like all of these, like just in ways that like artists think in ways that no other humans in any other profession think. And that was just so exciting. I was able to be like endlessly curious and endlessly always just asking questions, you know? And I think that like being in a in a in a world, you know, like that where you can, where it's endlessly creative has been just so, like I get up every day and I'm just like, this is so fascinating. And there's no shortage of like artists or, fa- you know, like even like the shows, you know, it's like, I think this year, Virgil is the fourth show I did this year, which is, admittedly, sort of insane. It's just like, I have so much energy. I just have to, I work that way because I just have so much energy. But, you know, in those shows, so you have Virgil Abloh, you know, an artist who sort of really sort of did not care about sort of the separation between commerce and and art and didn't you ha and then who was, you know, thinking about sort of sneakers as sculptures and think you know, all you just have that sort of like Part of you know an artist who's doing that. Then you have someone like Amanda Williams, you know, Chicago, you know, based also a Chicago-based artist who also was a, 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 a and um, trained architect. I was thinking about the similarities between them because both of the shows. Oh, actually, up right Virgil now. and yeah,
0: yeah, and like, Amanda, they're both in Chicago.
1: Yeah. Both trained as architects. Both became artists in their own ways, right? But she's sort of expressing that artistry through abstraction, you know, and um, the way that she sort of treats and attacks surfaces. And then before that, you had someone, you know, uh, Awal Arisku, you know, the image maker who made light boxes of, you know, who has a... He grew up in New York, but um, he uh, has an Ethiopian background and is thinking... has totally created his own sort of vernacular, uh, you know, through images. And he um, made these light boxes um, of all of these different animals, right? And sort of... It's called Memories of a Lost Sphinx, the show. And he, you know, just like... Thinking about sort of like the component parts of a Sphinx and then doing this installation that he did at our gallery, I was like, I could have never thought of that you know like and so it's those three different artists, and you have Alexander Smith, you know the the queer black artist who sort of has just completely created her own sort of universe of characters that sort of center you know black femme identity, you know and like it's like who could do that in the span. six months you know like all of these different artists really different concerns and being able to be in conversation with them and to sort of bring their visions to the world in that way really it's just like you know sign me up i have two other shows this year you know
0: (laughs) hi i'm debbie millman canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in At canva.com. Designed for work. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors and the problems they bring? Like employees missing bills because of shorted paychecks, managers taking the heat from angry employees about those shorted paychecks, HR and payroll teams clocking late hours to correct timesheets, expense mistakes, missing overtime, and sick days? All of that is so unnecessary. Pump the brakes on payroll errors for good by putting employees in the driver's seat. With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll. Betty identifies errors and guides employees to fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. And no one knows when their pay is wrong or right, better than employees. So why not let them fix payroll problems before they become problems? When you get payroll precision every time, unnecessary payroll hassles become, well, unnecessary. Manage the process to make payday right for everyone with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com soundrise. That's paycom.com soundrise. Antoine, you've said that you didn't know you wanted to be a writer until you started writing. Yeah, exactly. And you've talked about how as recently as 10 years ago, really, when you started writing professionally, the media landscape was mostly white. Oh, yeah. It was impos- almost impossible to get a foot in the door. And there was also no effort to do anything to change the system or the institutions. The people working in it were just trying to preserve the status quo. How different do you think it is now?
1: I think... That in the other sort of parts of the culture writing space, so music, even film, theater, have been a lot more open to new voices, younger voices, voices of color than even the art world is today. Still right now. Meaning that all of the critics that when I was 21, who were the head critics of magazines and whatever, are still in those jobs right now today, 10 years later. At the Times, the New York, any of these places that we sort of go to as papers of record or, or whatever, there is no consistent black art critic at any of those places. None of those places has a, crit, a staff critic, not a freelance person who, you know, but a staff critic. Right. I don't think there has been one at the New York Times, quite frankly.
0: I mean, it's astonishing. It's astonishing that this is still something that needs to be discussed that needs to be pointed out. Um, you know, when when you worked on your second book, when you worked on uh, Young, Gifted and Black, mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere that somebody asked you, why were you doing a book like this? Mm-hmm. And you replied that, that you think that the art world has an old way of doing things that excluded a great deal of people. And you're not satisfied with that old way of thinking because it was racist and sexist and got us an art world where 90 percent of the fucking artists in museums are straight white men. Yep. Um, So thank you for saying still to this day. Like
1: we like to make. And that's the one thing that I think that is still extraordinarily frustrating in this moment that we are supposed to have all this change. And there's a lot of front facing of women artists, of black artists, of queer artists and all of that. But they're not collecting those artists. Still to this day, and with all that has happened and transpired the last several years and the last decade, you still have a extraordinarily reluctant sort of white guard making the decisions. One of the things that motivates me is, you know, not sort of this sense of, like, the only one or, you know, because like to be clear, I have somehow figured out how to get into these spaces that a lot of folks that look like me are not in, Right.
0: Well, that's why you see it firsthand. <laughs> and so but for me it's
1: about like opening that like it's not even about it's not I'm mean, not it's not even like a a savior complex. It's just sort of like at the end of the day, I would like to sort of show artists of interest, you know, that that I find interesting. You know, like I would like to sort of like I've spent, you know, last 10 years really sort of thinking sort of extraordinarily critically about black art production. I would like to bring that knowledge to the places that I sort of walk through, right? And I think that, that for me, that's just it. You know, that, that it is simple as that. I have spent this amount of time doing this thing, and this thing is valid. Yeah, like, I'm getting a lot of attention, but, like, there are other people who should also be in these spaces. Even in the critical sort of establishment, like, when, when you have black writers write, you know, in these spaces, it's like they always have to have PhDs. They always, you know, it's like they ha- they almost mm-hmm. like have to be like overqualified, you know, not just yep. like this. Like I have this inter- this interest, you know. Even and I even struggle with that. I remember asking my best friend Jaja, I was like, "Do you think I should like go to Yale and get like a PhD in art history or whatever?" And this was like two years ago, and this is after the New Black Vanguard came out. It's successful in the sense that, like, an art book does not sell, you know, 25,000 copies in a year and a half.
0: You know what I mean? Like, that, that, Not at that price point. Not at all. $50 yeah.
1: a book. You know what I mean? Like, that just does not happen, right? And so— just knowing that success and all of the stuff and having the Times clips and the New Yorker clips and having, you know, people, you know, like all of these different things, you know, the fashion company, like all of that stuff. I go, do you think I should go get a PhD? And because in some way, I think I felt, you know, inadequate, you know, in some way, like maybe if mm-hmm. I had this other thing, maybe I'll be able to, you know, be seen differently. And she just turns to me and she goes, you're doing everything that the PhDs want to be doing, you know?
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, good. Good advice from <laughs> like, oh, Jaja. Good right. Good
1: advice. Good advice. <laughs> like, and, but but it's it, it sort of like, you know, even my, my point in all of that is like, even when you're quote unquote allowed in, it's not going to change if you're not sort of like on a mission to make sure that artists, and it's so layered, like artists and collectors and writers and like are all sharing in that, you know? And so it's not about sort of at the gallery, for example, you know, it's like I'm a director at Gagosian and it's really great. And people made a really big fuss about that. And it's really amazing. And it's a great gallery. And it's a wonderful platform, extraordinary resources. Uh, and, you know, Larry is, is amazing. And like the sort of, you know, the inventor of this sort of modern sort of, you know, gallery system that we're, we're in. And I just was like, well, I can learn a lot from him. And had a lot of conversations about sort of the work that I do and how it's not just about me, it's about sort of like making sure we have on the magazine black writers, making sure that like we have black artists, making sure that black collectors get access, making sure it's like all of these other things, making sure that museums also are a part of the equation, right, and not just sort of wealthy black or white or whatever collectors, but making sure that there's a public component to this, right? And so every show I have done at the gallery Several of the works have gone into museum collections. It's just an important thing to sort of mean to the artists, to sort of the popular sort of imagination and the public sort of function of those spaces, right? The art world, the art gallery system, is largely predicated on sort of the private buying um, and trading of artworks, right? And for me, as someone who, like, is sort of in this from a communal standpoint, you know, I love when works go to, you know, museums so that work can be seen by folks who don't have whatever, you know, to sort of have an opportunity to also experience that work. And so that's also very important to me. And so, like, in the conversations that I have with artists, it's always, like, even before we do shows, it's about, so what are the goals here? Like, what, and I'll tell you, I'll share my goals, you share your goals, and then we'll work, you know, towards that. And Because also, I mean, frankly, you make way less money selling to museums than you do to private people, right? So like, if we say art has this sort of magic thing, that it's something about more than who we are, then you have to be willing to make sure that that work is able to be appreciated by the public.
0: Working at Gagosian as a director has not hindered you in any way from continuing to do the work you want to do outside of the gallery, and nowhere is that more apparent than in the exhibit you curated that just opened at the Brooklyn Museum titled Virgil Abloh, Figures of Speech. It is a stunning major survey of the work of polymath Virgil Abloh. One of my great, great regrets, Antoine, is that I was invited to interview him by his folks, and we were working out a date in dis- in November.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was very, very busy, as you can well imagine, and they asked me to do it on the day I was set in stone to interview Ai Weiwei. Mm. And I knew that I couldn't do both in the same day. It wouldn't be fair to either of them. I wouldn't be able to give him the kind of in-depth Robust interview that I would want to do and felt that it would be disrespectful to Virgil actually Mm -hmm. and asked if I could have another day And they they said absolutely. We'll get back to you with a new day and and then he passed away Mm -hmm. It's one of the great great regrets now of my career. I'm so Happy and honored that I get to talk to you about this show Which I've seen twice and is just stunning for those that might not be aware Virgil Abloh was an artist, an architect, a designer, an entrepreneur. He was the artistic director of Louis Vuitton's menswear collection from 2018 to 2021. He was also the CEO of the Milan-based label Off-White, hence our earlier joke about Antoine's hats. Um... He entered the world of fashion with an internship at Fendi in 2009 alongside Kanye West, which kicked off a prolific artistic collaboration. Time magazine named him one of the most 100 most influential people in the world in 2018. And tragically, Virgil passed away from a very rare form of cancer in December of 2021. Did not see the opening of of his show now. Antoine, you and Virgil met in 2019 on a call with the Brooklyn Museum's director, Anne Pasternak, who had plans to bring a version of the exhibit to the museum following iterations at MCA Chicago, Atlanta's High Museum, ICA Boston, um, an an exhibit in uh, Cutter's Garage Gallery. What was that first meeting like with the three of you together talking about what was possible for the show?
1: It was, you know, Anne called me before and said, I have a crazy idea. Would you guest curate our Virgil Abloh show? And this was before actually I was even at the gallery because it, we, this show was supposed to open before the pandemic and... I was like, yeah, sure. But first I need to talk to him. I wasn't sort of the type of person to sort of just take a show. Um, I wasn't sort of interested in that. And, and I was just like, I'm way too young and I have way too many ideas. I'm from, I'm actually from, I'm a black man actually from Chicago. I know who you are. I know the work. I had spent some time at RSVP, RSVP Gallery, which was like the pop-up shop that he did, inspired in part by Colette. It was in Chicago. And so I had, I had those sort of experiences. And then at MoMA in 2015, uh, during Yoko Ono's exhibition there, she did this uh, sunrise piece. It was at 4 a.m. He played the opening of that piece.
0: He was a prolific DJ as well. Yeah, exactly.
1: He was a prolific DJ. I mean, totally. He played the opening of the piece, and it was 4 a.m. in the morning. And he puts on Kanye West's song that was like, "Four, four in the morning, and I'm zoning. you know. And then you have all of, I have video of this still to this day, all, you have all these kids who just, I had never seen in museums at that point, you know, jumping on MoMA's furniture, like, like literally just like, like it's a, like a club in you know, Berlin or something. I was like, this guy, we need this guy in the art world because I've never seen kids my age at that point, you know, early you know, 20s like this this is the sort of change we sort of made. And so I had those two experiences, the RSV gallery, I knew to work from the Kanye days, and then that MoMA moment, I was like, oh, this is sort of interesting. And then, you know, over the years he had blown up and has been doing all that stuff and had, you know, moved from architecture to design to fashion to, you know, art to speaker, you name it, he had imprinted himself and his ideas on that sort of creative industry. And... I was just sort of more selfishly thinking, man, I really would love to know how he works was the, was the true motivation. It was, it was sort of like, yeah, I'll do the show, like, fine. But I, what I want to know is how he does this. I've, there's not been a black artist who have worked this way before and has been this prolific in so many different. It was completely fluid. Like creative Spaces and he, he, you, I agree that he operated with such a fluidity, and I just needed to know how that worked, just from my own sort of like black artist writer, you know, like and you know, like you know, position, you know, in the art world.
0: So, what did you discover? How would what? Tell us how he did how he did that.
1: It was just so I take I take the the job and and it's like come with some ideas around the show. You know, my first idea, which we didn't end up doing which answers your question, I go, how about we just sell everything off the walls for seven months just continuously, right? Like it's art, it's commerce. You don't give a shit about the distinctions. I don't care about the distinctions. The art world pretends to care about the distinctions. Let's just sort of do this thing, but we can also do this thing around consumption. And I was just like throwing these ideas and...
0: So a cash and carry kind of thing.
1: Yeah, like the reason why that didn't happen was because one of his collaborators, Takashi Murakami, had set up a a Louis Vuitton (laughs) store at the Brooklyn Museum during his retrospective in 2008. And I was like, oh, it's too close, you know? But he was like, yeah, I'm game. And from there, I was like, oh, we're going to have some fun. We're going to collaborate and we're going to talk. And then he quickly threw me in like six uh, different WhatsApp groups. It was just like... Curating by WhatsApp is what I call it. That's his mode of communication. I've never exchanged an email with him, ever. It was all WhatsApp. And in the main WhatsApp group, it was me, Mahfouz Sultan, the Harvard-trained architect, who helped us um, conceptualize um, the exhibition, and Virgil. And we just threw ideas all day long. I mean, all day long. We had changed this show seven or eight times. He just moved with great fluidity, and it was hard to pin him down because he had so many ideas. And so every meeting, it was like... Just one after the dia- one idea after the next one idea after the next one idea after next, and you're just like, okay, this is how you're a genius. The creativity was so like magnetic and constant and relentless.
0: You have to print if well, you don't have to. You, I would love it. <laughs> I think the world would love it if you printed that whole WhatsApp exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You it's know, like he's a doing.
1: A, I heard. I met a, um, I met an editor at the opening who is doing a book similar like this. And so he had already, you know, Virgil was, like, so ahead of the game. He had already thought through that already. And so he's... Okay. And then also there was in his um, monograph that he published, Four Figures of Speech, um, and it's unusual in the sense that, like, it's not sort of a catalog. It's, it, you know, like of an exhibition. It's just, like an archive of all of his
0: stuff. Yeah, it's an extraordinary book. Everything exactly. about it, from the spine to the side pages exactly. to the end pages to everything everything about it. And then it his own voice is in
1: it, but it's his whole yeah. archive. And so in that archive, you have all of his, like, these WhatsApp exchanges, just sort of like... And so because that was... I mean, he, he would draw literally right onto things in the WhatsApp, he just sort of moved in a, a super fluid way. And that was a way for him to be able to be a part of as many conversations as he possibly can. Because then I met people and they were like, oh, I was in 15 WhatsApp chats with, with Virgil. And then like you would go to his studio in Paris. And I remember being there um, in February right before the shutdown and I walk in and, like, Kashmir Kami's in one corner, you know, there are some rappers in this other corner, there's Mufu's, there's Oana, The you know, like, the, the, there's just, like, all of these people who seemingly come from all of these different worlds. And not to mention, the vast majority of the staff that were working for him were these black kids that he had seemingly met around the world and on Instagram, you know? It's like one guy with some... He liked the way he was dressed on Instagram, lived in Harlem. He was, like, 17, and he was like, do you want to come style the show? And so he flew into Paris to style the show, and he'd see this kid on Instagram. Another kid was, like, from, like, I think, Sedan? Tawanda, who who runs his design studio today, Alaska, Alaska, guessed his email address... And emailed him and said, I want to work for you. Now he's the head of his design studio. And the the first project they worked on is the IKEA collaboration. You know, like, so I needed to see that. Like, I needed to, because it it really offers a real way that artists can be in the world, you know, as a curator and as a writer. One thing that I do is often sort of share knowledges, right, Um, from artist to artist or in a museum or in a gallery or in a book or whatever. And I, I just wanted to have the opportunity, selfishly, totally, admittedly selfishly, to be able to share that knowledge, to sort of share the way that Virgil Abloh worked as an artist, right? Because I think there is something in the sharing of his practice that others can learn from, right? Maybe that goes back to the teaching. But I take that really to heart when I'm doing any of the creative work is to make sure that, like, there are ways for folks to um, take something from it. And so at the Brook Museum, what you see is really an artist's journey from beginning, really, like, early ideas to being on the world stage. And, and you know, one of the things I remember, you know, asking him was, like, you make things in funny materials, is what I or I think I said or something. And he just told me, serious as he always was, it's about the materiality. What I'm trying to communicate when you see the foam, when you see the you know the the, the paperclip jewelry and all of these things is what I'm trying to communicate is that you can be creative and it, and it's in your vicinity to be creative. And so when I was a kid and I took the paper clips and I made the necklace. That was me using the materials around me. And so when I build a city out of styrofoam, like he did with with Chicago, and it opens the exhibition, what he's saying is you can go to Home Depot or you can go to Ace Hardware or you can go to a hardware shop and you can get some foam and you can build some shit too. You know, he had such a democratic spirit, you know, like in that way. That is sort of what I want more than anything for the public to sort of understand is the way in which... He operated because a lot of times what you saw was the final product, right? You saw a sneaker, you saw a runway collection, you saw a speaker system, you know, you saw the end product, right? And I think that what this show allows is for the accessing of his prototypes and how those prototypes m- led from one idea to the next. It might have shown up, say, as a chair that then influenced a jacket, right? Like, I wanted to show the fluidity, but I wanted to... He used to always say that everything's a prototype. And so what he meant by that was, like, one idea leaves to the next, and he's never finished with an idea. And boy, was he never finished with an idea. I mean, sometimes, I must say, like, it was extraordinarily frustrating to be like, but we just... We, we settled on this show. Like, we have a show. <laughs> Here's the floor plan. This is the pathways through. We have these beautiful sight lines. Like, this work speaks to that work. Like, it's good. We are great. Like, let's, you know, we worked down to the wire, you know, on this exhibition. And it's generally not the way that museums work. Like, usually museum exhibitions are set long, 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 long in advance. I mean, we were moving things. Until the day before. I mean, we had the show notes that guide you through. I mean, we had to totally redo those the day before. And thank God, I mean, thank God for Anne, the Brooklyn Museum, the Brooklyn Museum team, because I don't know another museum on this planet that would have allowed an artist to change things that they had signed off on, was set in stone. Even a social sculpture, you know, the, the, the sort of middle sort of piece in the exhibition. Can we see some plans? Can we see some plans? Like, how are you gonna build a large scale house? in a museum, it takes some time, you know? I think we got the plans three months ago, like three months from the the day that we're standing, we're sitting here having this conversation.
0: Wow, (laughs) the show opened like three days ago. (laughs) And
1: so I was just like, we have a wood shortage. This is not possible, you know? And what I loved about Virgil and what I love about his wife and and his team is that they so believed in his ideas that they were willing to do whatever it took so once you settled on an idea it was like we are getting this made you know and it was a gazillion dollars and we did it in new jersey i mean i had several meltdowns you know like like but they got it done we got it done and you know it, it becomes his last architectural sort of project um as a living artist and it's just so special to have that work because it really is about the two things that Virgil, I think at his core as, a, as an artist were about, which is community and collaboration. And so, yes, he was someone, he was an architect and he was an architect in fashion and design and all of the spaces that he moved through. He kept sort of the central sort of tenet of what architecture is, which is to create space. Right. And so he created space. Literal space, but he also created spaces for collaborators and friends and for people he didn't even know, right? And in the space of the social sculpture, he was like, I want kids to come and take the space. I want artists to come take the space. I want my collaborators to come teach classes and all. And so in the, that's what's happening in that yeah. space, you know? It's a space that through collaboration and creativity, he hopes sparks other ideas for other people's then to go on and do other things, right? And so it's a real sort of living sculpture in that way. And that for me, I think out of all the works of art in the exhibition, that one I think speaks the most clearly to Virgil's ethos.
0: He said over and over again that everything that he did was for the 17-year-old version of himself. Mm -hmm. And in in many ways, I think that helps us understand how he's going to live forever.
1: Yeah, no, I I think about that quote a lot. And I think about that in relationship to sort of like what he meant, right? Like this was a 6'4", dark-skinned black man, right? Like, like, Like the world was literally not built for him, like literally, like physically his body. And so what he had to do is redesigned the world to meet him where he was at. When you talk about the the, the 17-year-old self quote or the I sell ideas, you know, like those sort of quotes or the albolisms, right? Like you you think about what he was trying to do, not only with objects, but also with language, right? He had a language, he had names for everything and he had ways that he thought about and he had principles and all these things. What he was trying to do was construct a new way of being, of seeing. And it was just like one that was extraordinarily considerate, right? Like the Nike shoes, you know, he dressed the guards, right? Like in and, and the show, right? And so the Nike... Swanky sneakers. <laughs> and he did the whole uniform. And, yeah. But the Nike sneakers have garnered a lot of attention because they're unreleased. What a gesture, right? For like the people in museums who are often overlooked and undervalued to sort of be the first folks to wear those sneakers, right? As Virgil intended, it's about sort of like, which I think he did a lot, was sort of trying to sort of transfer value, to confer value onto those who had been all but rendered valueless in the systems in which they operate, in the cultures in which they operate, right? And that's why when he writes sculpture on a handbag, it's about sort of not just like, being funny or ironic or do champion or, you know, Hamian. It was about sort of making sure that folks who prize, say, their handbags or something else as a sculpture were taken as seriously as, you know, sculptures on a plinth in a museum, you know? And so yeah. it was about sort of trying to make sure that the people where he came from, that he knew mattered as much as, like, the things that we, we regard as high culture or whatever.
0: Absolutely. My favorite, one of the fa- most favorite things that I own is his Ikea clock mm-hmm. that says temporary.
1: Temporary, yeah. Yeah.
0: Because, you know, what is time? Yeah. Right? Antoine Sargent, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about so much work you do that matters. Um, Thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Thanks for having me. This was such such an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: You can find out more about Antoine Sargent at AntoineSargent.com. That's A-N-T-W-A-U-N-S-A-R-G-E-N-T.com. And you can see the show that we've been just talking about that he curated for the Brooklyn Museum titled Virgil Abloh, Figures of Speech through January 2023, but go soon. It's an amazing experience. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.